don't need to pray. I was going to open with a prayer. I don't need to preach or pray. Um, there's a lot of visitors, so um, we just want to let you know. Um, we're going through John. Uh, my nickname is Deuce. It's really the name I, my parents gave me, so I'm not just trying to be cute with a fancy name. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Epiphany Fellowship. Um, after spending many years being about Jesus Christ, um, letting him bogard my mic and bogard my stage in the rap context, after years of just pouring out, some people were gravitating toward me saying, man, I'd like to see myself uh, be poured into on a more strategic basis. And after sort of shrinking back from the idea of the pastorate for many years, um, it wasn't until probably my last year of seminary, which has been about three, three years ago for me right now, when I began to think, wait a minute, shepherding has been taking place. So uh, and Philadelphia needs more shepherds. Philadelphia needs more particular communities, not just people who know they're part of some universal body of Christ somewhere out there in the cosmos, but people who rally and link with other believers and then plot themselves right in the middle of some context. And then they all say, now, us being here, is anything going to change? Because if not, maybe the spirit of God that we think so highly of is probably still back in the book of Acts doing stuff, but he hasn't caught up to us yet. Maybe he's in some church that's more, that's more of the Pentecostal or charismatic persuasion where there's all kinds of activity that looks like it's the spirit. But I want to know, and often me and my colleagues want to know, well, will he do anything with those of us who rally and who look at this Bible and say, dang, you know, we're a lot more simpler in our faith. We're a lot more, mm, I don't know, um, artistic in our expressions. But we still want to know, is that same Holy Spirit going to make a difference in an area where depravity, where evil reigns? So every time I go out there, I'm, I, I look at the toughness of the terrain. I say, dang, Lord, like, are you going to use me? I mean, I know when I go out there to some church and I'm on stage, people seem to like me. But nobody around here seems to respond like the people, are, you know, at my concerts. That's because uh, it's not a show out there. And so we welcome you week after week um, to lock arms with us as a church and see what difference the Holy Spirit of God makes when he invades us. Uh, we've been going through the book of John as a, as a church plant. Um, we've been up actually public since September 17th, uh, and we're in the ninth chapter of, of John. That's because we believe that every nook and every cranny of John's gospel has something to tell us. There's one big theme of this book, just to catch you up, and that is, I want you to believe that Jesus is Messiah. The Jews would understand what Messiah is. The Greeks would have said Christ. Jesus is the promised one who's going to make a difference in neighborhoods like this, make a difference out there in the suburbs, make a difference on the farmlands. Jesus Christ is the one that God promised would come after Adam jacked everything up. Adam and Eve's uh, deciding to do things their own way caused such a rippling effect down through history that God had the promise somebody's going to come that's going to get it right. We see it in the Bible, nobody else got it right. They were, they, a lot of good efforts. Moses, great guy, but didn't get it right. Joshua, good guy, didn't get it right. Joseph, good guy, but didn't get it right. And so God says, one day Messiah's coming, he'll get it right. 
So when we get to um, John, John says, hey, I want to let y'all know, don't keep looking for the person who's coming. He's here. And he came and he got it right. So the John opens up by saying, let me just tell you. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. 14 says, and that word became flesh and he lived for a while. He parked for a minute. He sat around. He hung around. He didn't make a beeline out. He didn't hang in all the comfort zones. He embedded himself in the place where most of us try to duck and dodge for a while among us. And then the people, his inner clique, the disciples, they said, and we beheld his glory. We saw his all thatness because it says in verse 12, he came to his own so that everybody would see his all thatness, but his own received them not. He says, but us woo, and anybody else who received him to those who believed on him, he gave them the right to become children of God. So with that premise John begins to unfold how you know John's not just pulling our leg about Jesus being the promised one who got it right. Jesus being the promised one who came and had some glory he could show. Because when he came, he didn't come blazing in light like he does in Revelation. When John said, and I saw him and I fell face down, I saw blazing eyes and I saw a voice like thunderous waters. That's not how Jesus came. So what is all this glory talk? Well, he says, ah, I'm getting ready to show you how he began to seep his glory out. And he began to pull the veil back. The more, the further you get down in John, the more he's showing you I'm glorious. We saw him change water into wine. We saw him uh, heal people. We've seen him come on the scene and say, I trump all of the stuff you put your hope in. All of the stuff I used as an appetizer, I trump it. Yeah, they don't want to go to a restaurant and the appetizers are banging and then the meal come and you're disappointed. And that's how he was. He was like, yo, if you like Moses as an appetizer, guess what? I'm Jesus. I'm better. He doesn't let you down either. He says, oh, you know, Jacob's well. Remember the Samaritan woman. Chapter four was like, I know you ain't greater than Jacob. Come on now. I know you tripping. Jesus said, come on, man. <laughs> Jacob. He says, you drinking from Jacob's well, and every day at noon, you plodding out here, all hot and sweaty. She was probably dripping with sweat. And you got to carry these water jars back. Says, whoever drinks from me will never thirst again. Now she tried to switch her picture. Well, give me this water so I don't have to come back here anymore. You just keep seeing that. Last week we were talking, um, well, a couple weeks when we got to eight, we started talking about Jesus showing up during the Feast of Booze. This is by way of catch up. I'm, I promise we're getting into nine. But it's a lot of y'all who are here for the first time. Chapter eight, he comes on the scene during a festival after his brother said, come on, go to the festival. Jesus says, come on, man, watch out. I know when to go to the festival. For you, you just go places. I'm strategic with mine. And the Bible says that he got to the Feast of Booths, which was this feast that they had to commemorate when they were in the wilderness. The Bible says he got there and he just began to teach. And on the last day of the festival, then he just blew the roof off the place. He waited because he knew it was going get, to get kind of ugly. Last day, he said, hey, everybody, if anybody's thirsty, I'm water. If anybody's hungry, I'm bread. If anybody's in darkness, I'm light. Caused an uproar in the religious leaders because they're like, who are you? We closed last week with him saying, who am I? Before Abraham was, I am. 
So now you're in chapter 9 with us. When I was growing up, and you probably remember this, it was something about when someone talked about your mother. Like, <laughs> for some reason, that was a no-no. Now, I had, a, I had a different upbringing. I was raised by my pops. And my mom will tell you this, so this is not to shame her or anything, but my mom will tell you that she gave us to our pops, my brother and I, because she wanted, she was like, kids, I was like going to the club. She gave us to our pops, like, your pops would do better. I like to hang out. So when I grew up, I mean, really, my pops was the hero. But I just sort of went along with culture. You don't talk about my mom. Now, they could talk about your father all day. <laughs> and you wouldn't say nothing. It was some, so I just sort of just grew up like, don't talk about my mom. I wasn't even, like, tough like that. So, like, for you to talk about my mom, it really didn't bother me because I sort of didn't, like, it didn't register as a, as a super offense to me. But, you know, you don't want to be left out, so don't talk about my mom. Somebody talk about your mom, you'd be like, don't talk about my mom. No, you can do anything you want. Just don't talk about my mom. You take offense. Well, I didn't understand that till I grew a passion for Jesus Christ. And with the same, the same way it does something to you when people talk about your mom, if that's what happens to you. It started happening like that for me when people talked about Jesus Christ. I liked it when rappers would diss Jesus and all of a sudden, they, I used to like the rappers. And the moment they dissed Jesus Christ, my like for them ended. I knew God was up to something. It got to the point where I wanted to rep that Christ in a counteraction against them. The only problem is nobody could see what I see about Jesus. Today, we're trying to get people excited. We want to intensify people's worship. We want to make it not just a religious thing, but a genuine relational thing. We want people waking up at 5 a.m. instead of 6 a.m. if you get up at 6, just to meet Jesus. We want to see them after work instead of just going and doing whatever. Getting with some context where it's about Jesus. We want people to want messages that are not just about meeting your personal needs, but that are about Jesus. As Jesus said, the whole Bible is about me. But most people don't see what we see about Jesus. You ask yourself, what are you, blind? Today I like to talk about blind, but not beyond belief. Let me read it. This is going to be a two-part series. You know, I always like, you know, I say that. I got a two-part series. It's two parts, and usually it's a series, but mine is just two parts, but Chapter 9 is a beast. It's all one thought, but the first seven verses actually focus on a miracle, and the rest of the book focuses on the implications of that miracle. Today, we're just going to look at the miracle. Let me read. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Simple story. Let's unpack it. It starts off as he passed by. As he passed by what? It doesn't really fit with the 59 of 8 because 59 with 8 has Jesus ducking from people who wanted to kill him. And then it just says, and as he passed by, as he passed by what? So probably this is placed here by John strategically, not just uh, chronologically. It's not that it didn't come after the threat of his life. It's just that John is not, he wants to connect it because the concept is the same, but it doesn't necessarily just happen as he ducks around the corner and then he just passes by and sees this man. Because Jesus now was about to get himself in more trouble with the same people that were trying to kill us they were trying to kill him so it was shortly thereafter sometimes sandwiched between this feast and the next one we're going to see in chapter 10 the feast of dedication so follow me as he passed by he saw a man blind from birth the reason why this is interesting is because it shows you a jesus who's on the move All the Gospels want you to know that the moment Jesus touched the ground, he touched the ground running. He wasn't running aimlessly. Jesus is heading in the same direction from the day he's born toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. Every now and then he went to Jerusalem and he sought to offer himself as the king, as the one they had been waiting for, because Jerusalem is the center of Jewish life. So he would go to Jerusalem, he would do things, Jerusalem wouldn't respond right, and then he'd just spend his time on the peripheral. So we get, as he passed by, to let you know, hold on, this is another encounter with Jesus. This is another one of Jesus' encounters where he's just on the move. The reason why that's important is because the first thing we see is, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. The first thing is that Jesus is concerned about spiritual and physical blindness. The first thing we need to understand, he has a concern for spiritual uh, blindness and physical blindness. I only say that because... If he's on his way, blind people, beggars, poor people are a dime a dozen, especially around the temple area. You usually don't take note of them because they're so regular. For this to talk about a Jesus who happens to pass by, he's more than likely in the temple area. And for him to look at and take note of a blind man in particular... We're not given any details about this blind man in terms of who he is and what makes him special out of all the blind men that are in the temple area. So John is saying, just know this. Jesus was on his normal, on the move, and he takes note of a blind man. So you can at least say as a general principle, Jesus is concerned about blindness. It says he was blind from birth. How do we know? We don't know how they know, but it just shows you again. If he knew that, He's blind from birth. This shows, once again, concern. We know that Jesus just doesn't stop, and he just doesn't, uh, doesn't just, I just want to heal you because I like healing. Jesus is always interested in both a physical and a spiritual reality. So, again, we see he has a concern about human blindness. You could make this even more general by saying he's concerned for our physical and spiritual good. By way of principle, Jesus is concerned. You say, come on, man. Come on, you bastard. I heard some of your music. You're usually deep. 
That sounds so elementary. But isn't it true that circumstances challenge our belief that Jesus cares? We know God cares until something goes wrong that seems to fly in the face of God cares. You see the books where God had to state the obvious and you realize God's people are always in circumstances that God's people and writers have to say he cares. First Peter 517 cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Because the believers were under such an onslaught of troubles that what is going on? Don't you care? When the disciples were on the boat and Jesus was sleeping, they said, wake up. Don't you care that we're perishing? Aren't you concerned? Luke 12, 20, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Of course, trusting Jesus was getting them in trouble with the religious order, which was going to mess up your finances, mess up your security. What does Jesus say? He runs down a list of stuff people run after. And then he says, hey, the nations seek after these things. Don't worry, your father is concerned. He knows you have need of these things. All of this is showing you that Jesus lives his theology out. So when he's on the move and he sees a blind man as he's just on the move near the temple, he seizes this as an opportunity to do something. And this is why the connection with what he's been saying, a connection with what he's about to say, shows up and makes this even more interesting. For Jesus Christ, he's always a capitalizer. We see him on earth. He doesn't, he's efficient. Jesus is efficient. He capitalizes on every moment. Colossians 4 says, yo, make the most of every opportunity when you're with outsiders. When you're with outsiders, don't just shoot the breeze. When you're with outsiders, don't just agree that jam is hot. When you're with outsiders, just don't talk about American Idol and that's that capitalize on your moments with the outsiders. Jesus sees a blind man and says, I'm the great capitalizer. Now, I just got through not too long ago telling people I'm the light of the world. If you don't want to be in darkness, come to me. Everybody who comes to me gets out of darkness. He sees a blind man and a blind man from birth. Now, in, uh, in Kings, it talks about Elijah to prove that Yahweh is Yahweh, he intensifies the trial by pouring. He says, yo, I tell you what, God is God if God answers by fire. The way we'll figure out if God answers by fire and not by a flicker is we'll build the whole sacrifice, put all this, uh, these stones together in this wood, and we'll call down fire from heaven. Whosoever God lights this joint up, that God is God. When it came to Elijah's turn to prove and to exaggerate the point that Yahweh is God and he has no competition, he, he wets his sacrifice. Then he digs a trough around it and he adds more water to it. In other words, to get my point across, I'm not going to just do a miracle. I'm going to make the miracle hard and I'm going to do the miracle. Jesus Christ, who says, I understand, y'all don't believe I'm the light. You don't believe that if you come to me, I can bring those who are dark into light. So I'm not going to just get a blind man who, like, lost his sight. Then when I heal him, you say, oh, wait, it was a temporary loss. You sort of just got it back because you were scheduled to get it back. No. I, yo, blind Bartimaeus, I, I got all kinds of people who lost it, and the Bible doesn't say anything about whether it was from birth or not. This one's from birth. Jesus says, listen. 
It ain't like this dude saw, stopped seeing, and is about to start seeing again. I'm going to deal with a dude who's never seen. We'll come back to that. I care. I'm concerned about your good. (laughs) For Jesus, he says, I'm a capitalizer. Every physical reality has a spiritual parallel. So he looks and he says, all through his ministry, well, there's a physical well and you're thirsty. There's a spiritual thirst and I'll be the new water. Well, I know people know what it's like to need street lights because they didn't have street lights then, but they had a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire by night. And that pillar of fire had to move in order to keep them moving forward. And so he says, yo, I'll be the light. He says, I know you know what it's like to hunger. I know you know what it's like to thirst. So I always use these as a way to talk about how I meet those. I provide real manna. He says, I was the one that provided the real manna, but he gives credit to his father as the one who used him. He says, hey, but I, I, I also was the one who fed the 5,000. He says, and I wanted to tie the two together to say, just like you were hungry and I was able to feed you, and just like the hunger and the appetite was so much that nobody out there had enough, he says, I want to let you know that your spiritual hunger is like that. There's no one, not even yourself, who can feed themselves spiritually. There's no one out there who has enough of what this world needs spiritually to feed the world. He says, but I am the bread of life. Once again, this is the great capitalizer sees a great time to teach not only his sufficiency, both physically and therefore spiritually, but to talk about our desperate need physically and spiritually. So Jesus is concerned for our good. But the disciples bring an interesting point up. Look at verse two. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents? That he was born blind. Verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed. God is not just interested in our spiritual good and our physical good. God is concerned about his glory. Now, John Piper has gotten people upset because he makes a bold statement. It's more of a logical one, but it has some grounding. He says, more than God loves us, God loves his glory. But in him loving his glory, it automatically puts us in a position where we don't have to worry he'll love us. But we like it the other way around. So this songs, he died for me, he loved me, he saw me. If I was the only person on the earth, he would have came for me. And though those are byproducts of he loves his glory, and it's to his glory to rescue people who can't rescue themselves. So he goes on and he says, listen, I know if he knew the inside scoop that his blindness was resulting in God getting glory, maybe he would have been frustrated. Like, don't try to get glory blinding me all my life. I'm talking about you getting glory and you messing around, like making me sick. Get glory some other way. Well, uh, it says here, and this is up for debate theologically, but I, I like 
the fact that this is a exegetical possibility. It says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that, that word is henna in the Greek, the works of God might be displayed in him. In the Greek, henna is purpose or result. So that means he's like this for, like God purposely made him like this so that he could show his works. Or Jesus is not commenting on the why he's like this. He's saying he's like this and it will result in God showing up his glory. Now, God's capable of doing either one. And he's fair to do either one. But in terms of what this is saying, it it could be that Jesus is not going into why he was like this. That Jesus is just saying, but watch what results in it because he's about his glory. You see, we're all up in this text theologically. Before you say, dang, see, that's what I'm saying, man. All this theory. Come down my street. Preach to me. You don't know what I'm going through. But the idea here is that we are blind from birth. Restoring sight is the job of the promised one, Messiah. Restoring physical, spiritual sight is his. Um, Messiah was like nobody in the Old Testament gave somebody sight. Out of all the stuff they did, nobody healed someone who was born blind. Jesus comes and delineates himself and distinguishes himself from appetizers. I'm the real meal. 2 Corinthians 4, 3, 4 says, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to rattle off some passages to talk about us being in this text. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Remember, I started by saying, man, I, I get upset when people don't give Jesus his props. The only problem is if they can't see that he's worthy of his props. If you and I can't see he's worthy of his props. If you and I think he's worthy of his props, but... We don't know just how much he's worthy of his props. A lot of times it's because there's veils over our eyes. Now, in this context, this is straight unbelief. This isn't, well, you sort of do see, but you don't see that much. This is you don't see because all of us from birth, like this man was born blind from birth. All of us from birth fall under 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4. 3.14, later on, he was talking about the people who had a hard time accepting that Jesus trumps Moses. He says, but their minds were hardened. That's where we see spiritually. We see with our eyes physically, see with our minds or our hearts spiritually. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Once again, blindness, because it is removed in Christ. So everybody who's outside of Christ still has the, the, their eyes shut. Now, physically, they can see 2020, but spiritually. So when we try to get cats amped about Jesus, there's a veil over their eyes because that veil is only removed in Christ. What did he say? I am the light of the world. Come to me. Your darkness leaves. We're all up in this. Ephesians 1, 18, Paul's talking to believers now. And he says, now for you, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you could understand how dope the faith that you have is. See, some of us were in the faith, but we're still, our lips still are poked out. We just didn't want to go to hell. We don't realize the, like, the, all that we got. I got this pocket PC. I've said this time and time again. 
I mean, it does so much. The book is thicker than the phone. I still just hit talk. The red and the green phone. Hello? Hello? Tag. And that's it. Well, I'm lying. That's an exaggeration. I at least use the calendar and a couple of alarms. But you can get a regular phone for that. You don't need all of this. Paul says, I got to pray that you're, you're awaken to see. You don't, you're not just not going to hell. He says, oh, see, y'all don't, you're sleeping on. And that's why non-believers don't understand what the big deal is. And for them, they think, well, I mean, they even have it twisted about the benefits of just not going to hell. Well, I mean, at least I'm going to be partying with my friends. Acts 26, Paul's whole mission. The reason why we have a Paul, the reason why God, when Paul used to beat up Christians and when Paul used to give it to God's people, God graciously saved him for this purpose. Acts 26, 15, he, Jesus, he said, who are you, Lord? When Jesus fought back, right, without having to swing a blow, just, just showed him a little bling, just a little light. Now, you know that light we're talking about? That light when he says, I'm the light of the world? Sometimes the light could just enlighten you. Other times it can blind you. All he had to do was turn up the, turn up the nozzle a little bit. Pew! Paul was like, ah, psh, fell off the horse. And the Lord, and he said, who are you? Jesus said, I'm Jesus. He could have said, I'm the light of the world. But I guess he didn't want to be sarcastic. Whom you are persecuting. He says, but get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you. See, just as appearing to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things you've seen when you can see, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And another way to put that is and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. What's my point? Jesus is concerned about blindness, physical blindness, spiritual blindness. Why? Because Jesus is concerned about our good, spiritual good, physical good. But he's not a sentimentalist just concerned about our good. He's concerned about his glory. So when we see Jesus pass by and takes notice of a blind man and proceeds to talk about how he's about to use this blind man for God to get glory, the disciples want to know, wait a minute, you sure this isn't because anyone sinned? Basically, the disciples were espousing a view that was common among Jews. You remember Job's friends, when Job was going through suffering, Job's friends said, come on, everybody knows that this is because of sin. Who suffers like this and it's not because of sin? Now, generically speaking, they're right. All sin and all suffering can be traced back to sin. But what Jesus does is he expands their understanding of sin and the connection to suffering by saying, well, in this case, this man didn't sin, nor his parents resulting in this. This is so that God's glory may result. So uh, we know this. Now, one of the most annoying periods in my life, my Christian walk, 
was during that season when you weren't allowed because of a lot of the radio and TV uh, ministers, you weren't even allowed to admit you could feel a cold coming on because you were claiming it. And you can't say that. So, like, I know when I'm getting a cold. I get that little funny thing, like, almost like this drip in the back. And that's to let me know, uh-oh, watch out. One, stop eating so much sugar. You know, that brings your immune system down. Look at the grace of God sending you symptoms to let you know it's coming, right? Oh, the other thing is, yo, bundle up, throw a little scarf. You know, you got to go out this weekend. The other one is, yo, get you some Theraflu or something like that. Get you some tea with some honey. Like, they used to say, oh, don't say that. You can't get sick. And they had a litany of preachers who made sin connected to uh, suffering or sickness or sickness so unlike God that it wasn't supposed to even be mentioned. This is sort of what they're doing right here. They're sort of almost saying, man, God, sin has to be there if this man is sick. And so God says, nah. Like the psalmist of 119, it's good when I'm afflicted. It's good when things get the best of me, whether it's sickness, whether it's poverty, whether it's, it's good. He says, because then I learn your statutes. In Proverbs 30, uh, the, 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 the sage says, listen, every time I get too much, I forget you. Now, when I have too much, I get tempted to cur- too little, I get tempted to curse you. It says, make sure I have just enough to stay on point. Sometimes God deems it, well, you need to be afflicted because you're not, you're off balance. Jesus looked at the cross. I mean, I'd rather have blindness than the cross. And Jesus says, get glory out of this. Be glorified, Father. We not only see Jesus' concern in the first three verses for blindness, we see that he's committed to curing blindness. Verse 4 to 5. Listen. We must work the works of him who has sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He says it again. Now, it's one thing to care about the fact that we're blind. It's one thing to have a concern for our spiritual and our physical good. It's another thing to be committed to doing something about it. Now, this is the problem right here. It's here that we begin to see Jesus model for us determination to work the works of he who sent him and diligence. Now, I'm going to unpack these simply because lately I've been asking God about the same thing. We're going to see diligence. We're going to see determination. First, his determination. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me. Now, let's just look at one word, must. In the Greek and in John's book, this must is divine obligation. Divine obligation. This, I can't do anything else. Even if I wanted to, this is the son of God. Even if I wanted to, I can't because I must do this. Now, we don't have, like, we're so democratic and we're so us that we don't understand must. When I was growing up, you know, in the hood, it used to be something like black folks used to say, I ain't got to do nothing. Only thing I got to do is be black and pay taxes. That used to be a running joke. That ain't funny. Like, who, who, who's scared to laugh at that? That's okay. Maybe that wasn't funny. I didn't think it was funny either, but, you know, back then you don't want to 
sort of like your mom joke. Anyway. <laughs> Paul said something similar. Paul said, woe to me if I don't, like, I can't even boast about my preaching. He says, I have to preach. I'm under compulsion. And we praise God that the Lord Jesus Christ was a hustler. Again, Mark's gospel shows you a Jesus who wastes no time. You don't catch him like, like snoozing on the case and then the cat's coming like, yo, Jesus, Jesus, huh? Wake up. What you doing? Chilling. Now, Jesus was caught reclining, but it was strategic. In fact, they come looking for Jesus and he's already been up before the son's up getting it in with the father. Determination. I must work the works of him who sent me. Hustling. This is this idea that he will not be sidetracked, not sidetracked by victory. Luke and Mark give a case where Jesus Christ is doing so well that you would think he could take his foot off the gas. That's me. That's the, the in the tortoise and the hare. Y'all know the, the, the fable of the tortoise and the hare? The, 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 the hare was so far ahead, he thought he could just veer off to the side and eat carrots. Fell asleep and lost the race because he was sidetracked by his victory. So many times for me, I'll get in the gym. I start seeing a little something. Then I'll think, I cannot go today. After all, look at me. Before you know it, three weeks go. And I'm like, look at me. Not sidetracked by victory. Human applause is dangerous. It makes you stop grinding because you're taking in the victory. You don't say we must keep working. You say, oh, wait, 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 wait. Do you hear that? Ooh. And you park there. God wants me to go to Philly, let's just say. On my way, I'm going to spend a few weeks in Maryland. You go to Maryland. See, this is bad because you're going to take this wrong. But let's just say, you go to Maryland and everybody likes you. And you find a new house and the grass is green. Man, why am I going to Philly? The grass is green here. And the house is here. And somebody came to me and said, I think the Lord wants you to have this. But wait, you said God told you to. But things start popping on your way at a pit stop. Then you make the pit stop your end destination. Jesus never stopped. When he fed the 5,000 and said they wanted to make him king, he came to be Messiah. Jesus, come on, victory. Come, get the, bring out the chariots. Become king. Jesus said, ah, let's get out of here. Because he also knew God said, you got to go to the cross. Why stop at feeding the five and getting applause when you still got to go to the cross? We start rethinking things. Maybe God didn't say go to the cross. Determination. We must work the works of him who sent me. But you've already healed people. We must continue. Then he says this. I'm determined, right? And his determination is banging because he says not only won't he be, deter be sidetracked by victory, but he won't be sidetracked by opposition. The reason why I say that is because this determination, we must work the works. What he was about to do was about to get him in trouble because we're going to see it was the Sabbath and there were people who were just lurking, waiting for him to do something on the Sabbath that they called work so they could basically beef with him. Jesus says, well, I know this is going to cause trouble. But he still worked the works. The apostles, look, 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 please, y'all. 
with, I'm talking to us. Our Christianity should look something like this. The apostles look like this. They got beat for preaching Jesus. They said, okay, we'll let you go as long as you stop preaching Jesus. They went back to the same place where they got beat and said, obey God, obey man, you choose, we got to obey God. And they kept preaching Jesus. Read Acts, it's funny. Paul gets stoned, dragged out of the city, left for dead under some rubble. The text says Paul pushes the rocks over, brushes it off, and doesn't say, I better go somewhere else. Mess around here and get killed out there. No, he goes back into the same city preaching. Jesus says, we must. This is a commitment. But look, he's not doing this for him. Jesus is not pressing through oppression and deflecting the benefits of victory for him. He's doing this because he's committed to bringing wholeness, a cure. This is what, look, Jesus, look, all Jesus wants you to know is we're not like him until we decide I want to be like him. That's all. Look, this is not me coming at stones. This is just to show you all the difference between our model, our stencil, and us. Jesus cares. We care. That's easy. I care too. Jesus is committed to doing something about what he cares about. Well, I was too, but the book of Haggai. Many people haven't read the book of Haggai. But if you go in the book of Haggai, it starts out. God coming on a day where they were fed all these festivals. A lot of stuff happens on the festivals because that's where you have God's people most gathered. And God is the great capitalizer on a crowd. He ain't like, oh, man, a crowd. Wait, wait, let me spit my new one. Let me spit my new one. And you just spit something all off to the side and be like, after the crowd, go, wait, wait, wait. We got to give you the gospel, too. You know what I'm saying? At the end of the concert. He says, yo, my people say it's not time to do what they left. Persia or Babylon under Persian rule to do. Well, if you read Ezra and put Ezra and Haggai together, they went and they started and they built the foundation and they laid an altar and they were singing and they were praising and they were dancing and then they ran into a little opposition from the neighbors. They had to fall back, fall back, fall back. We're going to keep going because we must build the temple. They fell back. One year, two years, three years, four years, 16 years passed. God had to come and say, uh-uh. but look, it's not so bad. Like, yo, I thought you said, oh, that's right. The text says these people say, and they were in the process of continuing to adamantly decide it's not time to build my house yet. Sidetracked by opposition. Jesus says, I'm not sidetracked by this little victory. The applause, I left that a couple chapters ago. I must work the works. I'm not sidetracked by the fact that they almost killed me for the same thing I'm about to do right now. Did something on the Sabbath they didn't like. I must work the works. He's determined, y'all, to not be sidetracked. But here's the problem for you and me. Jesus really didn't say, I must. Look at four. We must work the works of him who sent me. Now, don't you hate to be dragged in 
and include it in a we? Just because somebody else feels led? Some friends of mine cracked me up with this one joke, right? They were out committing a caper of some sort. I forgot what it was. When it was time to hide, the dude said, yo, hide with me. He said, nah, nah. He said, come on, man, I'm telling you, come with me. His friend said, nah, 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 you go over there. I got a different hiding space. So they broke up. The cops caught the other dude that didn't come. As they're leading the dude that wouldn't come out, he comes over to the bush where his friend is, where they didn't know he was. Some of some, you could come out, they got us. They got us. You could come out. They got us. All of a sudden, it's us now. It's one thing for Jesus to say he must. It's another thing when he says we must. The thing for me today is trying to figure out who my we's are. When we look in the Bible, God really is speaking to us. Now I know the application of it varies. So you read something and something connects with you. And the application comes to your mind. You know what? Based on this principle, I order. But very seldom does God want an I order. In the Bible, even when Jesus sent cats out, he sent them out by twos. But not just because. I mean, this is at the beginning of the church movement. There was not many solid Christians to go dispatching. If immediately God began to cluster Christians up so that they would covenant together to do what maybe one person might say, yo, the Lord is, yo, you're right, that's consistent. Why don't we decide to do that? From the moment you include yourself in the we, now these principles of, wait, are you moved by concern? Enough that if you were just on your way somewhere, when you see it, you stop and entertain it? Some stuff you don't entertain. As Jesus is passing by, I'm sure he passed by others who were in need of something. But then the moment you say, I, I have a concern for this, now who's the we you going to commit to bringing about an impact to change with. Then when you get with that we, we must work in spite of victory and in spite of opposition. We see determination. We see diligence. Look what he says here. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And let me tell you what's dope about this. This is slightly different than determination. This is diligence. Determination says I won't be sidetracked. Diligence says I won't be slowed down. It's one thing. Now, now young, Jesus basically puts himself on a divine clock. Now, once again, you can't wait till you grow up or leave school or work for yourself so you can get up when you want to get up, go down when you want to go down, do what you want to do, don't do what you don't want to do. 
Work when you want to work. Take a vacation when you want to take a vacation. That's why we want to be entrepreneurs. That's why most cats today who rap want to go full time. Because what we think in our minds is, I want to be free to do what I want to do. Jesus always says, I can't do anything I want to do. I always got to do what my father says do. I always got to do it when he says do it. If I wanted to get married, I couldn't because the father said don't. I was in the wilderness for 40 days. I did want a meal, but my father wanted me to fast. Satan comes along and says, why, if you got powers to make bread, don't you eat? That's because I don't live just on satisfying what I necessarily want, but I live by the word that proceeds out of my father's mouth. Well, here we see again. We brings them in. We must work the works of him. That's one thing if you say, yo, let's do our work. They're talking about doing somebody else's work. We must do the works of him who sent me. Jesus has all of us on this mission. And, 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 and the, the key, the, the Christian key is to make sure that in whatever you do, you can justify it as the works of him who sent Jesus. By way of application, we'll get to application at the end. I'm not trying to tell anybody to do anything they don't want to do. What I'm trying to say is when I look at Jesus and I look at him interacting with his disciples, it says he passed by and he saw, next thing you know, there's a we coming up. Next thing you know, the disciples are discussing this with him. Hey, well, what happened to him? Now Jesus is talking this we, and he's putting them on a timetable. Now, you know the difference between, like, if you go to, like, vacuum your car out? Let's say it says free, free air, free vacuum. You're just like, eh, shh. You know what I mean? You getting, like, extra in the cracks, like, when it's free. Shh, you all casual with it, put it down, change the radio. It stopped. You walk over there. But. Every now and then, all the free ones are out of order. So then you got to pay. Now, the difference between how you vacuum when you got unlimited, no time limit, and how you do, well, I got to vacuum while my quarters are day. <laughs> you going on the other side, like it, the two fall off, you be like, ah. You're mad. You're trying to put it back on. You, you in hard to reach places because the time it takes to go all the way around or pull your car around so you can get it. So you all in the twist and you under it and you and you switching and you like, yo, yo, throw this over, throw this over. And you trying to get it. And it's like mad stuff still left. You're like, Ew. But that's a picture of diligence. Diligence says, while I'm under this strict time restraint, let me keep it moving. And let me keep it moving and not stop. Let me inconvenience myself because it's not like I got time to do it in some pretty fashion. I got to just do it. Now, this is God saying, work while it is day. This, this is their times. They didn't have street lights. They didn't like click. Oh, man, I was waiting for them to come on. All right, check it up. 21. Like, nah. That's how it was. When you didn't have street lights, you were like, come on, come on, man. Hurry up. It's getting dark. And cats play differently. Sometimes you watch your favorite team. You're like, yo, why didn't y'all play at the top like y'all did at the last two minutes? 
diligence. He says, yo, determination. We must. Divine obligation in John. We must work the works. What, your works? What you want? No, no, his works. And let's do it diligently for a night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't just care about it. I'm committed to doing something about it. We're coming to a close. <clears throat> Jesus is not just concerned about human blindness. He's not just concerned about spiritual blindness. He's not just committed to the cure. He's in control of the cure. Now look at this. Verse 6. I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with saliva, then anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So we went and washed and came back seeing. He's in control of the curing. Concerned about our issue. Committed to solving our issues. And in control of how he solves our issues. The beauty about this is, it shows you. Now, first of all, it says, he says he's the light of the world. Then he goes to bring light. And it says here, he spat on the ground, made mud with saliva. <clears throat> Other places, Jesus uses saliva. Now, this, it's not, it was believed to be a curative uh, but then some people believed that to use it that way was using magic. So some Jewish leaders said you shouldn't do it that way. Uh, I don't know what was going on through Jesus's uh, head when he used mud. Uh, I mean, when he used saliva uh, to make mud. Uh, some people believe that this was doubling the blindness just for visual effect. Some people believe that he was under the Jewish mindset of his curative in saliva. He did it before. I don't know all of the variables that made him do it, but one of the things we know is it shows you he's limitless in his methodology. In his commitment to bring cure, he determines which route he takes. We're going to come back to that. In his, in his commitment to this, he shows you that he's sovereign over his methods. The man didn't ask him to cure him. Jesus volunteered. He's sovereign even over the selection to cure. Then he's sovereign over how he cures. Crazy. Now, the beautiful thing is, even though Jesus starts this process, he involves the man and requires that the man be involved in the process. The man shows you, man, there's a blind man that doesn't know Jesus. As we're going to see, he's going to grow in his knowledge. He gets this mud on his eyes, and he goes to the pool. So the pool Salome, John lets you know, is means scent. It's, it's, it's how the pool was made. They basically had to run pipes from another spring in order to get water <clears throat> uh, into this pool. So water was sent into the pool, so they called the pool scent. The man is sitting here. The one who sent, John always refers to Jesus as the one who sent. Sends the man to a pool named Scent. And in him connecting with the Scent, he comes back seeing. Now, the beauty about Jesus, the capitalizer, <laughs> he could have sent them anywhere. Why is it that Jesus sends him to a place called Scent? 
Why is it that Jesus chooses a man who is born blind? Why is it? It says, having said, I am the light. He already said, I am the light that the father has sent into the world. You put all together, Jesus is just a beast. Like he's he like Jesus is not just coming up with stuff. He's not grabbing the nearest thing next to him. <laughs> Hand me that. No, he always knows what he's doing. The reason why we need to know this is because this is the one who's commissioning us to follow him. That's what discipleship is. Follow me. And so look, look, he comes back seeing. Blindness. Removed. Now, next week, you're going to see the, the disturbance if you're back. You'll see the disturbance that this causes. But I want to say applicationally, we are the blind men. We are the blind women. Our spiritual blindness is from birth. It's our inability to perceive spiritual realities. Sometimes it shows itself up in the form of you just can't appreciate spiritual realities. See, we think because we understand, like, no, praise and worship. I know. I, I grew up in church. No. Oh, I know. Preachers. I mean, my father's a pastor. Come on. I know what you're saying. I read the Bible every day. Spiritual blindness. Sometimes people don't even know they're blind because they're that blind. We don't initiate our cure. <clears throat> Jesus is passing by and Jesus sees us and he initiates a curing process. We're passive in that process. He makes the first move, but we're involved in the process. Go wash is the equivalent of obey my route to your, to being cured. For God, his unconventional curing method is the cross. Who sinned this man or his father? <laughs> Both. Our father's sin. And we follow suit. May we be concerned enough to stop and take notice of opportunities <clears throat> to do the work of him who sent us. That's redemptive work. Work that makes a statement about what God calls himself doing. That's not just doing any old thing that's good. Redemptive work says what I'm doing, I'm specifically doing because of the way it illustrates what God is doing. Chew on that one. Let's be committed enough to doing redemptive work, determined, not easily swayed because of troubles or hard times, diligent. Let's, let's not do it for a couple weeks and then just sort of kick back and then get back to it. Let's stay on it and may God's grace enable us to use a variety of possible ways to bring solution to the things we care about. And commit ourselves because it's this <laughs> that he says was done so that the glory of God could be displayed. And so I'm praying right now that as part one of blind beyond, but not beyond belief, because all of us are blind. But Jesus says, he who believes in me, though he perish, yet shall he live. Like Jesus' whole thing is believe in me and be made anew. Believe in me and the veil gets lifted. Believe in me and an appreciation for the Holy One emerges. Disbelieve like we're going to see next week and stay blind and become more blind. Let's pray.